And so people today think, well, I can believe in God without acknowledging the Son. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because we have planted and sown evil ways, and if we die unforgiven, then we will not meet him as a savior. We will meet him as a judge. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Today's sermon is entitled, The Judgment of the Nations. Over the next three days, Dr. Brogy will highlight the time, subjects, and the results of this judgment and its impact on those who believe and those who do not. Please join us in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, as we begin. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the gospel of Matthew chapter 25. If you are joining us for the first time, we are in a series that I've entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. And we last time just cracked the door on a series of coming judgments that will happen at the second coming and another judgment that we are yet to study that will happen at the end of the millennial reign of the Christ. And uh, just as there are different kinds of courts in the world today, there's federal courts, state courts, city courts, all kinds of different courts. Everyone that meets God will not meet him in the same judgment. And so we underscored last time, contrary to the way most people think, and sadly, most biblically ignorant Christians, they think there's just one big judgment. And that's not true. And so we're looking at a number of different judgments. This one, this morning, that we'll focus on happens at the end of the tribulation period. So the next event to happen is the rapture of the church. It's a non-prophetically driven event. It could happen today. Jesus could sweep his people up into heaven. The word rapture, harpazo, to be caught up, to meet the Lord in the air. And from the Latin Bible, we get our English word rapture. Shortly thereafter, there will be a treaty signed by the Antichrist, a covenant with Israel, and it will begin a seven-year period. And shortly after the seven-year period, Jesus will literally, physically, actually come to the earth. And the judgment that we're going to study this morning deals with that particular judgment. In fact, a number of judgments happen at the second coming. Matthew chapter 25, follow along as we begin reading in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, and the shep- as the shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers or sisters, you could say of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. 
Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me some, nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now we've been unfolding a series of parables We briefly looked at the end of chapter 24, the parable of the two servants. And then last time we studied in depth two parables, the parable of the ten virgins and then the parable of the eight talents. And all of these parables reveal inward condition, that if someone is rightly related to God, that inward condition will show itself outwardly. And this portion of Scripture, though certainly not a parable, is no different from what we have been learning thus far. And the description of this judgment happens, as we'll see this morning, at the second coming. At the great white throne judgment that happens at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus, there's no separation that takes place. If you've read Revelation 20, 11 to 15, the only people who are present are unbelievers. And so this is what we typically refer to as the sheep and the goats judgment. And if you're using the outline, there's one in the bulletin or one online you can print out. There are four critical truths that you might want to jot down for further study and reflection this week. First, the time of this judgment. I want us to think about the time of this judgment. We read now in verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So the time is clear when the Son of Man comes in His glory. This is not when we meet the Lord in the air and in the twinkling of an eye we are caught up and raptured and translated and carried to heaven that where He is, we will be also. This is when Jesus comes to the earth. Zechariah says He will plant His feet on the Mount of Olives and we'll study it further later on. But this is actually where that judgment takes place. He is on the Temple Mount in between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. There's the Kidron Valley. It's also called the Valley of Decision by the prophet Joel. Jesus had already spoken in Matthew 16 and verse 27 when he said of this judgment, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay every man according to their deeds. Just as the believer at the Christian's judgment in heaven, salvation is a gift. It's not a reward for what you do. The gift of God is eternal life, Paul will write, not of work so that no one can brag, but your service for the Lord is rewarded in heaven. He rewards you according to your deeds. Even so, he will separate these two groups of people according to their deeds because their works will either shout, I know the Lord, or their works will shout, I'm an unbeliever. Understand, works do not save you. And if you read this portion of Scripture, as liberal theologians habitually use it to teach salvation by works, they are missing the whole flow of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus taught you're not saved by works. 
and it misses the point that works are simply the fruit of salvation. So the grace of God, Paul write in Titus, the grace of God slide that brings salvation, what does it do? It instructs us. It brings salvation to all men. The grace of God is sufficient to save anyone. Jesus died for all men, but it only instructs us, that is those who are believers, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And so if a person doesn't have a new heart, because when you're born again, you are a new creature in Christ. If you don't have a new heart, then you won't have a new life. And there's a lot of people going around today who say they're saved and born again, but they live no differently than the world. Now, if you will recall last time, again, he's coming back in this portion of Scripture to see who's going to enter into the kingdom. We saw that the terms the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably. And I gave you several scriptural examples where within two verses of each other describing the same event, Jesus uses it interchangeably. But we also saw that the term the kingdom or the kingdom of God is used in three sense. Broadly speaking, Christ is on his throne. He has a kingdom today. God is in heaven. He is ruling. And so King David can write in Psalm 145, 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. On the other hand, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has a spiritual dimension to it. And so Jesus, when he was before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. In Luke's gospel, Jesus told believers, the kingdom of God is within you. Meaning simply when we are saved, when we have had a birth from above, and unless you've been born again, Jesus said, you'll never see the inside of heaven. But when you are born again, you begin to experience the kingdom of God within you. But there's a third dimension to the kingdom, and there's a literal physical dimension when Jesus comes back to the earth and he will rule and reign. He taught us to pray in what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. In Luke's gospel, he said, when you pray, say. So there's nothing wrong with repeating the Lord's prayer. It's never wrong to quote scripture back to God. But it's not simply what you say. He also said, when you pray, pray in this way. He's teaching us how to pray. And among other things, he said, you are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That has never happened but it is going to happen. Jesus didn't teach us to pray for something that's not going to happen. But when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying for the coming kingdom that he speaks about. And so the kingdom of heaven will literally come to the earth. And so Isaiah really gives us a picture of the various dimensions of God's kingdom. Sometimes, as we've seen in an Old Testament prophecy, the whole plan and program of God is given in a single verse or a single paragraph, including both the first and the second coming. And so Isaiah 9, 6, a baby is going to be born and the government will rest on his shoulders. The baby being born happened at the first coming. The government never rested on his shoulders at the first coming, and for that reason, many Jews rejected him. He's not the kind of Messiah we want. We don't want the suffering servant of Isaiah. We want the sovereign king who will put Rome under our heels. But the fact that there's a kingdom is announced even at his birth. Mary was told and promised in Nazareth, your son, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. 
Passages like Revelation 11.15 echoes this truth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And if you know that chapter, he fast forwards and he projects to the end when Jesus comes back to the earth. And when he does, we are told in Revelation 20 and in verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So there's coming a day, literally in the future, when Jesus will reign. And so here, that's what's in view in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit literally on his glorious throne. Now, if you know Matthew's gospel, you know one of his favorite titles for Jesus is the Son of Man. And if you know the book of Daniel, you know that's where we are introduced to the title, the Son of Man. Daniel is given a vision, and in Daniel 7 and verse 13, you might want to put that in the margin. He said, I kept looking in the night visions, and the cloud, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, a descriptive term of the Father, and was presented before him. So the term son of man is a messianic title. And it's an important title because it underscores that Jesus is not simply God. A baby will be born whose name will be called mighty God, but he's also human. He is the son of man. And the title is used 81 times in the gospels, either by Jesus or someone speaking of him. And it's a title that really reflects his humility as Paul describes in Philippians that he left the glory and splendor of heaven and humbled himself by becoming a man. Three critical titles given of Jesus in the scripture. He's the son of man. That speaks of his humanity. He's the son of David. That speaks of his royalty. And he's the son of God. That speaks of his deity. And actually all three are bled together in Isaiah chapter nine, a text we often read at Christmas. When he said, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, that speaks of his humility. Uh, His title is the son of man, his humanity, his humility. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That speaks of his royalty, that he will reign as king, as the son of David. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That speaks of his deity that he is indeed the son of God. And for a Jew to mention one was basically to affirm all three. When you said you are the son of man or the son of God, you're also saying you're the son of David. And that's clearly implied by the dialogue, if you remember that Jesus had just before his crucifixion with Caiaphas. Caiaphas put him under oath. He said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so when asked if he is indeed the Son of God, Jesus responds by saying, I'm the Son of Man. And he quotes Daniel 7. You have said it yourself, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see, and he quotes Daniel 7, 13, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus claimed that he is the person referred to in Daniel 7. And of course, the high priest Caiaphas understood his claim clearly, that it was a claim that he was God in human flesh. And so he said, you have blasphemed, and he tore his robes. 
the Lord would often use the title Son of Man to underscore that God had become one of us. But he also used the term Son of God to affirm that he was no ordinary person. Revelation 1.7 quotes the prophet Daniel, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And then a few verses later in Revelation 1.13, John sees one who is like the Son of Man. And when he comes, he will come with a crown on his head. And the word for crown is the word Stephanus. And it speaks of a victor's crown, that he is coming as a ruler. He is coming as a king. He is coming as a judge. Interestingly, the very first time in the New Testament, the Son of Man designation is given of Jesus. He used that he said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, meaning he owned nothing. In Revelation 14, the last time the term the Son of Man is used, he will be seen as having everything. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. So verse 31 here in our passage speaks of the Son of Man when he comes in his glory. And Jesus had already referenced this. If you look up on the page a little bit to chapter 24 and verse 30, notice, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. In other words, he is going to return to the earth with a brilliant display of his glory. Revelation 14, 14 describes when he comes with this brilliance and this glory that he's coming as a judge. Listen to these words, then I looked Behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. That's what the Scripture affirms. He's coming with a sickle. He's coming as a harvester. And as we'll see in our passage, he will separate the believers from the unbelievers. And all judgment indeed has been given to the Son. And so people today think, well, I can believe in God without acknowledging the Son. Nothing could be further from the truth because we have planted and sown evil ways and if we die unforgiven, then we will not meet him as a savior. We will meet him as a judge. Paul will say, God is not mocked. Do not be deceived that whatever a man sows that he indeed will reap. And as we underscored last time, all judgment has been entrusted to Jesus Remember what Jesus said in John 5, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. By the way, that's a claim to deity. Jesus is the judge, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Notice, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You cannot say, well, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you are not honoring the Father, and he will not honor you in that day. He's wearing a crown. He's got a sickle in his hand. He's coming as a harvester, and we will all meet him. We will either meet him as our Savior and as our King, or we will meet him as our judge. So that's the theology. That's some of the theology. Remember, this is a Jewish gospel. They understood these things. But that's some of the theology behind verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Now, the timing of this is very important. And there are two time words that you should circle in your Bible. One in this verse is the word when, and the other is the word then. The judgment is related when the Son of Man comes back on the clouds in glory. This is the second coming. When every eye will see him. In the rapture, we're caught up. We meet the Lord in the air. It happens so fast. Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye. But this is when he comes to sit on his glorious throne and then circle the word then. This is not the throne of God in heaven. This is the earthly throne that the New Testament spoke spoke about that the Old Testament prophets wrote about. The idea that the Messiah will literally rule on the earth is not a New Testament doctrine. It's sprinkled all the way through the prophets starting in the Torah. Moses even underscores it. The length of it is something we learn from the New Testament. For instance... The prophet Jeremiah prophesies of the time when Messiah will come. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness. Where? In the land. This is a physical, literal kingdom on the earth. So when Matthew writes of the time when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, he too is describing the time when his throne will be on the earth. It's remarkable. It's what we pray for. It's what God's saints have prayed for since the inception of the church. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's the time of the judgment. And as we'll see in verses 31 through or the 32 to 46. This is certainly not a parable. This is a description of that judgment so that God can weed out those who will not enter into this kingdom. So consider with me also not just the time of the judgment, but the subjects of the judgment, the subjects of this judgment. We're told now beginning in verse 32. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Again, if you read Revelation 20, 11 to 15, the great white throne judgment, who is present? Only unbelievers. There's no separation there. He's gathering all the unbelievers of all time for the final of all judgments, and when we come to that judgment, we'll see why he waits to the very end, and it's a very important reason. But the context here is on the earth, there's believers and unbelievers, and notice the term Gentiles or nations in most of our English Bibles. You could translate it either way, the ethnoi, the Gentiles, the nations. It's a descriptive word in the Greek New Testament to describe someone who is not Jewish. Now, in our Western minds, when we hear the word nations, we think of political entities, countries like the U.S. or Canada or Germany or France, but it's never once used ever in Scripture of some political geographical entity, only of racial ethnicities. And that becomes clear. And so here are Gentiles who are alive. Now, if you've read Revelation 6 through 18, you discover that several billion people die during the time of the Great Tribulation. The judgments as they come in seal trumpet in bold judgments are devastating. Those Gentiles are already dead. Then, of course, as we studied in this prophetic schedule, the Battle of Armageddon, when all the nations of the world go against Israel, Jesus, by the word from his mouth, will strike dead all those nations, those 
potentially, I suppose, maybe millions of people who formed that great army to go against the people of Israel. So who are these folks? These are the non-combatants who have survived the great tribulation period. And I want you to see that there are two major groups, Gentiles and Jews, and the Gentiles are divided into believers or unbelievers. So three descriptive terms in the text. Don't miss it or you'll miss the whole meaning of it. There's sheep, there are goats, and there are my brethren. And my brethren here, as we'll see, is a reference to the Jewish people. And that's important. Now remember, one of the principal reasons when we studied the tribulation period that God is going to allow it is he wants to bring his Jewish people to faith in Jesus. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And Moses looked down the corridors of time when he wrote Deuteronomy, and he saw this coming time, and he wrote about not only events when Jesus would come the first time, but also when he would come a second time. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 30, looking at the second coming, when you are in distress, speaking of the Jewish people, when you are in distress, and all these things have come upon you when? In the latter days. If you've been with us in this series, we define that that is a term that is used for the very end of time, just before Jesus comes back to the earth. In the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. So he predicted this time of distress when the Jewish people are going to feel such pain that God will have their attention. Sometimes that's what God does today, is it not? You go through a deep trial, things are difficult, and sometimes it's not until the bottom falls out that you begin to look up. Hosea the prophet, by the way, wrote of this same coming time frame. Listen to these words from Hosea chapter 5. I will go away and return to myself. The Messiah was here. He went away and he went back to heaven. I will go away and return to my place until, underscore that in your thinking, until they, the nation of Israel, acknowledge their guilt and seek my face in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Until the Jewish people turn to Jesus in faith, he will not come back. And so the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, Alas, for that day, this day of affliction is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress or the time of Jacob's trouble, depending on your English Bible. But he, Israel, will be delivered or saved from it. So that's, again, one of the chief functions. Everything is going to change during this time. Listen to the prophet Zechariah, the 12th chapter. God prophesies, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In the future, during the great tribulation, during the time of Jacob's trouble, God the Father promises he will pour out God the Spirit such that men will look on him whom they have pierced. He's describing the crucifixion. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 024. 
Also, don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to Search the Scriptures.